to these verses we read in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and from verse 14. Now, when it comes to state occasions being broadcast on our TVs in this country, and there is uh, always kind of one name that kind of springs to mind, isn't there? And it's the name Hugh Edwards. Okay, so whether it is Diana's funeral, let's say, or whether it is uh, that Diamond Jubilee, or whether it is, let's see, William and Kate's wedding, it's always, uh, on our TVs, it's always Hugh Edwards' voice we hear, isn't it? Sort of commentating on the events. It's always this guy, Hugh, Hugh Edwards, who is explaining things to us. You know, it's always him who's explaining the details What's going on? So was him explaining all these sort of royal procedures and all that sort of royal protocol. Well, for Hugh Edwards at a royal wedding, please, this morning, think the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. Because you see, what we've got here, what we come to next in our look through the book of Acts is... Is this man Peter? And what we see is him stand before this gathered crowd. And what he does is he, he comments on or he explains to this big, big group of people the significance of what they've just witnessed as the Holy Spirit has, has, has come down, has been reigned over the church. So what we've got this morning, I guess, if you like is not great expectations. What we've got this morning, what we're looking at, is instead Peter's great explanation of Pentecost. Peter's great explanation of that miracle, the tongues and the language of Pentecost. And folks, this, this our first of loads and loads of speeches and sermons in the book of Acts, this quite naturally divides into three sections. So that's really how we're going to deal with it. That's how we're going to approach things this morning. And um, I'll give you those three points that we'll look at just now. So we'll consider firstly, understanding Pentecost through Joel. Then we'll consider understanding Pentecost through Jesus. And then lastly, we'll consider understanding Pentecost through dejection. Okay, you got those? Understanding Pentecost through Joel. Sounds odd, but we'll get to it in a minute. Understanding Pentecost through Jesus. And then understanding Pentecost through dejection. Those are our sort of three points, the three sections. Okay, so let's let's begin with the first of those. Understanding Pentecost through Joel. Understanding Pentecost through Joel. Okay, as we get to this section, we are all able to sort of visualise what is happening in these verses, aren't we? You know, we've got a picture of Peter standing there, a bit like this, I guess. But he's standing before a much, much bigger crowd, isn't he? He's standing in front of thousands and thousands of people. But he's not on his own. Is he? Because you've got a picture as well that he is with his friends. He's got the 120 people from this New Testament church with him. 
And what happens is that at some point, Peter gets to his feet with the rest of the 12 apostles. What he does is he begins to unpack for this crowd the phenomenon that they've just witnessed as these sort of lowly Galileans that we, we looked at last week. As those people start suddenly proclaiming the gospel in languages, in tongues that were previously completely unfamiliar to them. And what Peter says, what Peter unpacks in the first section that we're concentrating on here, is that, get this, the miracle of speech that the crowd has witnessed, that was an event that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Are you following me there? That this exact thing, this exact crowd speaking in these different languages, that was an event that was foretold. That it was spoken of by the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament book of Joel, in that uh, quite a long section that Peter actually quotes to the crowd. So we get it, right? Pentecost is spoken of in the Old Testament. That's fine. And I think we've got to wrestle with uh, something. We've got to wrestle with what that tells us. You know, if, if Pentecost was foretold in the Old Testament, what does that tell us about the significance of Pentecost? You see? If it was foretold in the Old Testament, maybe even more than that, what does that mean for you? How should that impact our lives? And I, I think, friends, we've really just got to think about a, a couple of things with that here. So follow me in these. First of all, the prophecy of Joel tells us that from this moment, okay, from Pentecost onwards, the Holy Spirit would come to all believers. Okay, the Holy Spirit is going to come to all believers. Now you see that, if your Bibles are open, you've got it in verse 17. You scan through verse 17. Peter's quoting Joel. Look what he says. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. So what's been said there? Well, what, what Joel is prophesying there, and, and really what Peter is then sort of explaining to the crowd, and expounding to the crowd, is that from Pentecost, God was going to work in a different way to the way that he has worked previously. That's what's been said here. God's going to work in a new way. That was the prophecy. That, you know, previously, when God had poured out his Holy Spirit, how had he done it? In the Old Testament. Well, he had equipped certain people in certain ways at certain times, hadn't he? I mean, you think about it. How did God work in the Old Testament through his Spirit? He might equip a prophet or a king. You know, certain men, certain women. At certain times and certain ways. But not now. I mean, what do we see here? Here in fulfillment of Joel, what do we see? We see all people, don't we? We see the whole church suddenly being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, at Pentecost, these 120 people, all the women equipped, all the men equipped, 
all the young people, all the old people, all believers filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know what the accusation might be toward me just now. And what you might be thinking, you might be thinking, right, that's great, Andy, but we looked at this last week. You know, we looked at the reality of the Holy Spirit in the life of each and every believer. And you're right, we did. But look, have a look. You see, by citing Joel, what Peter's doing is he is telling us something richer than that. He's actually telling us something deeper. He's telling us something more significant. Because, you see, Joel doesn't say that the New Testament church is going to be given the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that God is going to impart the Holy Spirit. That's not the term. That's not the words that are used. Look at the words that are used. The word is poured out. You see, this is a verb in the original that suggests a real and amazing sort of abundance. It's a word that suggests that, that God is lavishly you know, extravagantly going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon each believer. Friends, a, a picture that might help us here is that of a power station. Okay? A power station that is creating masses and masses of energy. You know, a power station that's absolutely sort of buzzing with energy while the adjacent town is in darkness. The adjacent town is in darkness, unable to switch on a light because it, it does not draw in those reserves of power. And you see, friends, we are so often like that town. That's exactly what we're like. Because what happens when God saves us is he gives us masses of power in the Holy Spirit. Do you see, when we are saved, God equips us lavishly with the Holy Spirit, but all too often, like that town, we just refuse to draw on these spiritual resources. You know, we just sort of take on in our lives. We don't consider that we are filled with His power. We try to get through life on our own strength. Friends, what we should be doing is relying on And we should be drawing on these infinite powers that God has provided in his Holy Spirit. Because in the New Testament church, God has not just given, but God has poured out his Holy Spirit on each of his people. Poured out. But I think there's a a second thing we learn from the fact that Pentecost is prophesied, prophesied of in, in the Old Testament. Same thing about that. And that's that here at, at Pentecost, what God does is he ushers in what's called the last days. At Pentecost, God ushers in the last days. Again, your Bibles are open, folks, is verse 17. Because when is it that the Spirit is poured out? Do you see that? Verse 17 says, in the last days, it's a prophecy this time, in the last days I will pour out my spirit. So what what is that about last days? 
Well, it's going to sound weird. Sound a bit freaky. But I think what we've got to do here is that we have to equate these sort of different languages and tongues at Pentecost with the fireworks that hit the skies of London at uh, at New Year's Eve. I'm sure that everyone here has witnessed those fireworks. Because you see, the, the tongues of Pentecost, they're a sign. They're a symbol like the fireworks that a new period of time has just begun. You see, this guy that Peter's quoting here, this guy Joel, Joel was a prophet who spoke of the last days. And folks, these last days, this was a a chunk of time, a period of time, that begins with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and lasts through to his second coming. So when you're thinking about the last days, when you hear of the last days in scripture, what you've got to be thinking about is from Bethlehem to the return of of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself announced their inauguration at the beginning of his ministry. I mean, if if you know your Bibles, and if you think back to Mark's Gospel, can you remember what Jesus' very first words were at the beginning of Mark's Gospel? His first words. Jesus' first words. The time has come. Effectively, his first words are, The last days are here. And the crucial thing, and this is the important thing that we have to get from this, the crucial thing is that Pentecost was the anticipated indicator of these last days. You see it? The the Old Testament prophets, these guys in the Old Testament they expected the last days to be announced by this event. They expected the last days to be proclaimed by this outpouring of the Spirit in these tongues and these languages. At Pentecost, God ushers in the last days. So I have a question for you this morning. Do you see what that means for our congregation here in London? Do you see what it means? See, what we're seeing from Peter at Pentecost is that we, part of the New Testament church, that we are currently living in the last days. That you and me, we live, this congregation functions In the last days. Now do you see what a a sobering thought that is? You see, we are now living, friends, in what is the closing chapter of opportunity, if you like. We are living as the sort of final bars in the song of, of evangelism is being played. And as you consider that, do you see the urgency, the urgency that must accompany that? Because you see, in Scripture, wherever these last days are spoken of, they are accompanied by something. 
Almost invariably in scripture, when you've got someone mentioned the last days, it is accompanied by a call for people to turn to God. See that? Look, I mean, think about Joel here. What does he say? Joel's prophesying. And he prophesies, you know, this is the time that the last days are going to come. Then what does he say? He says, then everyone who calls in the name of the Lord is going to be saved. So that's what, that's what Joel says. What about Jesus? Well, well, we've just seen that his first words, we, we saw that he sort of, he, 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 he's incarnate as he begins his ministry and he says, you know, the last days are here. But then, wait a minute, what's the next bit? What does he go on to say? He says, the time's come, the kingdom of God is near. What does he say? Repent! Repent and believe. So you've got Joel say the same thing. You've got Jesus say the same thing. Hang on, what about Peter here at Pentecost? What does Peter say? Well, he gets to the crowd, he stands before the crowd, and effectively says to them, Look, Pentecost is a symbol that the last days are here, people. And how does he end his sermon? Repent. Repent and be baptized. Do you see it? There has to be for us an urgency because of the time that we live in. The sun is going down. The sun is setting on gospel proclamation and people are still dying and they are lost in their sin. We need to regain a sense of the reality that we live. You live in the last days. So understanding Pentecost through Joel. What about understanding Pentecost through Jesus? Through Jesus. Well, everyone knows, don't they? Even if it is just from uh, religiously watching the the Good Wife, that if a lawyer wants to make a, a decent case uh, in court, the thing he needs is evidence. Okay, if a lawyer is going to convince a jury of anything that evidence is everything. Well, it's, it's perhaps helpful for us here to, to think about Peter and to picture him, yes, in front of this crowd, but it's perhaps helpful if we picture that crowd as a jury. Because what Peter is doing here is he is putting forward a case. He is trying to convince the crowd of something. He is trying to convince these people that this man that that Peter is talking about, Jesus of Nazareth, Peter is trying to convince the crowd that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Messiah. And to, to convince the crowd of this fact, what Peter does is he cites evidence. Evidence is all important. And Peter cites two pieces of crucial evidence that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So what's the evidence that, 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 that Peter gives the crowd here? Well, the first piece of evidence is the resurrection. So the, the thrust of it is that, that Jesus is Lord says Peter. 
because Jesus is raised. See, in this sort of second section of his sermon, what Peter does is tell us or tell the crowd the story of Jesus Christ. I'm sure you noticed it when, when we read through it. What he does is he goes step by step on the sort of stages of Jesus' ministry. Did you see that? From sort of verse 22 onwards, he sort of says to the crowd, Jesus was a man. Okay, next stage. Jesus performed miracles. Next stage. Jesus died. Next stage. Jesus rose. Next stage. Jesus ascended. And Peter goes through it stage by stage. And although I think we should note that Peter draws attention to the Father's role at every stage of Jesus' ministry. He's not just a man. He's a man accredited by God. The main emphasis of Peter's sermon here is not that. The main thrust of Peter's sermon here is not on Jesus' life. And it's not on Jesus' death. And it's not on on Jesus' ascension to glory. Do you see what the main thrust, the main emphasis here is? It is on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You see, he's going through all these different stages of the argument and then suddenly kind of stops. You know, suddenly there's 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 a pause. It's almost like he, he goes away in a tangent. He's been speaking about Jesus and then when he gets to the resurrection, he moves away. And he starts talking about this Old Testament king called David. So, let me ask you this. Do you see the flow of Peter's argument here? There's evidence. Do you see the flow of it? What he's saying is that David was a prophet. That he spoke in the Psalms of not being abandoned to the grave. And Peter says, since everyone in the crowd knew that David was abandoned to the grave, that David had died, that he had been buried, that this prophecy that David wrote, that it mustn't have been about him. That this prophecy that he wrote must have been looking forward to someone else, to someone else, a descendant of David, to someone else in his line. So here's Peter's argument, simply put. He says, since the Christ is said not to have seen the tombs decay, and since Jesus of Nazareth is the only one that that is true of, then Jesus' resurrection is proof. It is evidence that he is the Christ, that he is that promised Messiah. So we see it, the first strand of evidence is Resurrection is proof that Jesus is Christ, that he's Lord. But here's the thing. It's the second piece of evidence that is, I think, of particular relevance to us. The second strand of evidence is more important to your life, perhaps, today. Because not only does Peter cite the resurrection, but get this. Peter also cites the miracle of Pentecost. He cites the tongues. He cites the different languages as evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Now, how is that evidence? How does that work? 
Well, we've, we've seen Peter summarize these stages of Jesus' ministry, that, you know, from incarnation to exaltation. But it is what he says at the high point of this that is just so important to get, okay? In verse 33, he is talking about Jesus. And he is talking about Jesus' ascension into glory. And what does he say? He says that there, in heaven, the Father does something. He says that there in glory, the Father gives Jesus, the Son, authority over the Holy Spirit. You see it? In heaven, the Father gives the Son authority to do what? To pour out the Holy Spirit. So do you see what he's doing? Do you see what he's saying to the the crowd here? He's saying to the crowd, look, hang on, just a A few days ago, Jesus of Nazareth was killed. And he rose. And he ascended. He went to glory. And there, in glory, what happened? He was given power to pour out the Holy Spirit. And he says to the crowd, have a look around you. Look at the 120 people that are speaking in new languages and new tongues. You see these people here? They are evidence. That that Holy Spirit was poured out. They are evidence that that person who died just a few days ago, Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the Christ. That he is the Lord. The people, the church, the 120, they were evidence that Jesus was Christ. And that's amazing. I think it's wonderful when we see Pentecost. As evidence that Jesus is Lord. That's amazing. But do you see the challenge? Do you see that? Because we are the New Testament church. We are in the same boat. We are supposed to be spirit-filled believers that provide evidence that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not just something that we've got here that is, you know, maybe like exegetically a bit interesting or fascinating. This is something here that should impact the life of the congregation, impact our lives. You know, we've seen that Christ has poured out on us the Spirit in that lavish way that we saw a moment ago. And now that means that we should be living in a way that that shows such reliance on the Holy Spirit, that when we do what Peter does here, and when we tell other people about Jesus Christ, that they go, hang on, wait a minute. Listen to what these people are saying. Look at the lives, the sort of spirit-filled lives that these people are living. Surely it is true. Surely it is the case that, that Jesus is. The Christ. Peter's evidence before the crowd as to whether Jesus is Lord. Peter's evidence is you. So we see understanding Pentecost through Joel and we see understanding Pentecost through Jesus. We're just going to end with understanding Pentecost through Dejection. 
We live in a fallen and sinful world. And um, there's perhaps no greater illustration of that than when we see pictures on our TV of refugee camps. At, you know, times of famine or at times of drought or times of warfare. And you know how it is, don't you? You know, the, the sort of... The camera pans across the crowd and we get a picture of where they're at. You know, the, the camera pans across these refugee camps and we see faces of despair, don't we? You know, we see all these people and they are living in hopelessness and they live in helplessness. And I think as Peter concludes his sermon at Pentecost, I think that is what confronted him and what confronted the whole of this New Testament church here. Because do you see, as we're told that as the crowd heard Peter testify to his Lord and testify to Jesus Christ, they realized, they realized that they had played a part in his crucifixion. And how did that go down? Well, look, what we read is that dismay engulfed them, that this sort of idea of despair consumed them. What we read is that these people were cut to the heart. You know that sea of confused faces that greeted the miracle of Pentecost? Remember that? Well, that's changed. And here we have got a sea of despondent faces at the Sermon of Pentecost. And I tell you this, see when you're reading it, you should feel and hear the anguish in that question that the crowd asked the disciples. Do you see it? I mean, there is anguish at the end of this when they say, Brothers, what shall we do in the face of this? What shall we do? You see, into that despair and into that guilt, what happens? A message of good news comes. Into that despair, that despondency of the crowd, a message of grace comes from the Apostle Peter. Because yes, those people are guilty. Those people are sinful. But Peter says, wait, hang on people, there is hope. He says, if they will only be, if they will only repent and be baptized, that these people will be forgiven for that sin. And more than that, if they repent and be baptized, they will be forgiven, but they, the crowd, will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is hope in despair. There is hope in dejection. These people can be cleansed. These people can also be blessed. And so I close this morning just wanting to speak to the person here who who really kind of feels that they are in that same situation. I want to speak to you if... If this morning you have that great sense of your sin. If you are feeling your sin this morning, 
And especially if you're a person who has not done what Peter encourages here. And if you are not a person who is, what is it? Repented? And been baptised? Is that you? Well, can I say to you, if it is that your situation might feel like a hopeless one. There might be despair for you because of that sin. You might feel that, that, that there's a weight to that sin. And because of that severity of your sin, you might think that, okay, this idea that you're hearing about of salvation through Jesus Christ, it's great for other people, you can see that, but that it is not for you, and it's not possible because of your sin. Well, can, can I see, do you see from what we've got in Peter that that is wrong? And that is just so dangerously and utterly false. Because we have to remember who Peter was speaking to. Who's the crowd? Peter is speaking to Jews in the first century Jerusalem. Do you see what that means? Here, Peter is speaking to the crowd that just a short while ago chanted Barabbas' name rather than Christ. I mean, he's speaking to this crowd, people who have walked into Jerusalem past the cross. People who have looked at Jesus on the cross and spat at him. People who have scoffed at Jesus on the cross. And yet, what do we find? What do we read? Peter says that there is still forgiveness. Forgiveness available for those people. So please see that it is not too late this morning and your sin is not too evil for it to be dealt with by Jesus Christ friends these are the last days so if you've not already done so repent repent and be baptised because in Christ while there is still time everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Let's pray.